So the command to rejoice is a law. But then the question comes, how do we rejoice? Because some of you maybe now are thinking, wow, my joy is lacking. I don't have joy like I should. Well, we don't. We don't. One day we will, but we don't yet. And so how is your joy strengthened? Not by me telling you, rejoice, rejoice, and beating you over the head with the law. That will never get it. You know you should rejoice. But the law cannot create in you the strength to rejoice. That comes by the Spirit who applies the promises of God in Jesus. It's very personal. His love is all-powerful, omnipotent. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why is that? Because he won't let it happen. He holds you in his omnipotent grip. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your fears and doubts may assail you. Your broken mind may fool you. Your sinful heart will lie to you. You may try to run away from the love of God. You might fight his love. You might even be one of the sheep that runs off, but he will go get you, put you on his shoulders and bring you back. His love is all-powerful. He will not fail to love you to the end. It's a conquering, powerful love. Your sin cannot stand against the power of God's love. He'll never stop his pursuit of you. So his love is unchanging. His love is all-powerful. And his love is all-knowing. Beloved, he knows everything about you. He knows all of your sins. He knows all the sins you know that you struggle with that you wish you didn't struggle with. He knows every one of them. And he knows all the sins you don't know that you're committing. He knows you deeply and fully and through and through. He sees it all. He sees you perfectly, better than you do or anyone else does. And looking right at you for who, in terms of who you are. And he loves you. And why does he love you? Because he decided to love you. Christ died for your sins. His love is all-knowing. His love is also unconditional in in a fundamental sense, meaning it's not based on anything in you. He swore an oath. He didn't have to swear an oath. He made a promise, but then he, he added to his promise an oath, a vow of love, and he can't break it because the Bible says he cannot lie. God's love doesn't depend on your works. God's love doesn't depend on your efforts or your goodness. His love for you absolutely does not depend upon your faith. It doesn't depend upon your conversion. It doesn't depend upon your faithfulness. It doesn't depend on how well you keep the law or how much you know. His love for you depends upon Him. He loves you with an infinite, perfect love. It's absolutely, fundamentally unconditional. And if you meditate on the love of God, you will find this to be a very sweet doctrine. And his love for you is one reason you should rejoice. This is why we have joy. When you think of election, do you rejoice that your name is written in heaven? Luke 10, 20, Jesus told his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. What a comfort. You did nothing to get into his electing grace. You can do nothing to get out of it. It's unconditional at the first and it's unconditional at the last. He's going to keep you by his power because he chose you in eternity. Had nothing to do with you. What a comfort. What a joy. 
You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Do you have true joy? Not happiness based on your circumstances, but true and enduring joy in the Lord Jesus Christ? Tom Hicks, pastor of First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, talks about this in his exposition of John 17, 13, in the following sermon titled, Do You Have Joy in the Lord? What a joy it is to be with you here this evening. Uh, I bring you greetings from First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, from the whole church and also from uh, the elders. Uh, what a delight. We pray for you. We're very thankful for this church. I wanted to begin with a question for you. Do you have joy in the Lord? I'm not talking about happiness in a technical sense. Sometimes we use those words interchangeably, but happiness refers to gladness in happenstance or circumstances. Our happiness, naturally, as human beings, our happiness rises when things are going well, and it falls when things are not going so well. People get happy, for example, when a baby is born. That's a good thing. When they get a pay raise, they're happy. Relationships are doing well. They're in good health. They're happy. Nothing wrong with that. But they become unhappy when things go more badly. Financial hardships, a loved one dies, or a marriage becomes very difficult, and they find they have health problems, and happiness falls. But godly joy is not based upon outward circumstances. Godly joy is rooted in God himself. It comes to us through the word of God as a Holy Spirit plants his word in our hearts. Joy begins with hope in the sure promises of God. It's a deep contentment and satisfaction with who God is in himself, independent of the providences around us. Now, godly joy, one thing that people misunderstand is that this is not binary. It's not as though you have joy or you don't. Well, it is in one sense because you can be totally joyless. But true Christians, it's not binary. You have joy in your heart mixed with sorrow. You have godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow all blended up together in the same fallen heart with true godly joy. And so true joy isn't singular. It's all, it comes uh, with many other things inside of us. But what I want to draw our attention to tonight is that one of the things that Christ prays for his people in the great high priestly prayer of John 17 is that we would have joy. This is one of the sweet blessings of the covenant of grace. God the Father grants this blessing to the people of Christ in him as a fruit of his own merits. And so please Turn with me to the 17th chapter of John, and I'd like us just to read verse 13. John 17, verse 13. And Christ is praying to his Father, and he says, To the Father, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus that his prayers are effectual and that you grant all that he asks here in this prayer. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see him more fully tonight, to understand your word and to receive it more completely and to enter more and more into Christ's joy for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, look at the text again. John 17, 13, Jesus prays that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, some people think when Christ says that they may have my joy, he's talking about that he would enjoy his people more. That it's literally Christ's joy in his people. But I don't think that's right. I think this is rather the joy that Christ has purchased and is purchased through his perfect life and anticipating his holy death on the cross for his people. So the joy of the Christian is Christ's joy given to us. And he says that his joy would be fulfilled in them or made complete. What that means is to, to abound more and more in joy. Now, the fact that the Lord Jesus prays that his disciples will have joy means that joy is very important. This is not something secondary. It's not a dispensable grace. It's not something we can say, well, we don't have joy, but we have other things. No, joy is essential. And I'd like us to think about this broadly for a moment. Romans 14, 17, you don't have to turn there, just listen. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God first in this age is the Holy Spirit's rule is God's rule in the hearts of his people. And, and so it's an inward kingdom. The church is the outpost of the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom, but rather the kingdom is the sphere of God's rule in our hearts, which will one day be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be eating and drinking, won't there be? The marriage supper of the lamb. And yet... The kingdom of God does not consist. Its essence is not in those outward physical things. It's a matter substantively of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says the kingdom of God is a matter of those three things. Righteousness, which is a law word. I believe that probably you're righteous. If you're a believer, you are because you keep the commandments of God, not perfectly, but you keep them with penitence in your heart and true faith. You repent when you sin. You're seeking to obey the Lord your God. Kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. You, You must be righteous if you're a Christian. I believe that you are. It's also a matter of peace. Most Christians are peaceful because they're at peace with God through the blood of Jesus. And as far as it depends on them, they're not trying to make war with other Christians. As far as it depends on them, they're at peace with all men. I believe that of us. But this says that the kingdom of God is also a matter of joy, which is satisfaction, delight in who God is in himself through the blood of Jesus. And I wonder if you have joy in your heart. 
Do you rejoice in the Lord? Do you think of joy as a pursuit in your Christian life? The Bible commands you to have joy. You know this, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul does not say. If you're temperamentally prone to happiness, then rejoice. But if you happen to be melancholy in your spirit, then you're accepted from the command to rejoice. No. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life, full life. What is abundant life? It's a life of contentment a fullness, not lacking, but full life that begins on the inside and works itself out. This is joy. It's the the spring of water that Christ plants in our hearts that wells up to eternal life and flows out from us. When the angel announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds, do you remember what he said in Luke 2? Luke 2.10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is our joy. The salvation of Christ leads to great joy. The Father commands joy. The coming of Christ is for joy. And then Galatians 5, to 23 says that the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit involves joy. Now, you know this. I know you know this, but there are not fruits of the Spirit. It's not multiple different fruits. There's one fruit in the Greek, and this one fruit has multiple aspects or textures, flavors, all together in it. And here they are. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So joy is not incidental to the Christian life. It is essential. And if you think about it, you know this, and so does the rest of the world know it, that it's essential to life, that everyone in this world is seeking joy, aren't they? You are. You want life. You want joy. You want abundance and satisfaction. Everyone does. There's only one question. Are you seeking it in the one who is himself life, or are you seeking it in the creation? Only two places to look either in a created thing or in the creator of all things. Where are you seeking joy? Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48 is a fascinating text. It says that one of the reasons God brought judgment upon the ancient Israelites is they did not serve the Lord with joy. Listen to what it says. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. Joy is law. It's a law. It's a command. You can't keep any of the Ten Commandments rightly, joylessly. It's impossible to have no other gods before God without joy. It's impossible not to covet without joy. The bookends and everything in between, they must be filled with faith and joy. So the command to rejoice is a law. But then the question comes, 
How do we rejoice? Because some of you maybe now are thinking, wow, my joy is lacking. I don't have joy like I should. Well, we don't. We don't. One day we will, but we don't yet. And so how is your joy strengthened? Not by me telling you, rejoice, rejoice, and beating you over the head with the law. That will never get it. You know you should rejoice. But the law cannot create in you the strength to rejoice. That comes by the Spirit who applies the promises of God in Jesus. It's very personal. It's very personal to Christ. And so how do we have godly joy? Well, look with me at John 17, 13. Jesus says to his father, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is very similar to what Jesus said in John 15, 11. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He speaks for our joy. Jesus says that our joy is based on what he speaks. His words are for our joy, which means that our joy is not based on circumstances. It's not based on our personality type or our temperament. It's based on words spoken by God in Christ, applied by his spirit. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. As the prophet said that. Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119.14, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And so a Christian can have joy even in the midst of great trial and circumstances that are difficult. This is a broken world in which we live. You're never going to have perfect circumstances in this world. It's broken. The book of Ecclesiastes says, who can make straight what God made crooked? This world is crooked by a curse. It's never going to bring you joy. The world can't do that. Only God can. It's a limited thing. But God gives us joy in the midst of trial. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word comes to us even in the midst of affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the word of God is given to us partly for our joy, sound doctrine, isn't just so we can figure it all out and make all the pieces fit together. Sound doctrine points us to God in Jesus for our joy. If you want to have joy, you have to not just know the truth. You have to believe, have faith in the God of the truth. Live upon this, build your life upon it. Practically, this means you have to read the Bible. Are you reading your Bible? I see you here tonight. That's good. You have to come and hear the word, the means of grace, public worship, public devotion together with God's people is primary over private devotion, but they're both necessary. You're reading your word, the scriptures. 
You have to, though, more than that, more than coming, more than listening, more than just going by rote through the Bible, are you laying hold of the words of life by faith in your heart as you read, thinking of Jesus, drawing near to him personally to commune with him? This is how we have joy. But how does the Bible give us joy? Well, first of all, you have to understand something. The Bible doesn't first give us joy by leading us to rejoice. Joy doesn't begin with rejoicing. Joy begins with mourning. It's what the scriptures teach. The way up is down, the cross before the crown. Mourning is the beginning of joy. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment. We'll turn back to our text, but turn with me, if you will, to James 4, verses 5 to 10. which teaches us to mourn over our sin. James chapter 4, verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So he wants our affections. That's what the word jealous means. He is jealous for our affection. He doesn't want our affections set upon the world or any other false God. He wants our affections set upon him. And that's for our good, isn't it? Because he's the first and best of beings. He's a source of life. So he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And then verse six, that he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is where it starts. Before the face of a holy God, thrice holy God, to see your sin, to see your worldliness, your love of the world too much, to see that your sin offends this holy God, and it wounds you and other people. And you mourn and you weep, and your joy turns to weeping and sorrow. But then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Now, that's ultimately eschatologically, right? You'll be lifted up all the way to heaven with him. And yet, it has a, an already here in this world, in our hearts. Our hearts are raised. The Spirit dwells in us. He exalts us even now. He leads us to joy. And so, joy begins with mourning over our sin in the in the face and the sight before the face of a holy God and his holy law. Now back to John 17, 3. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you. So in John 17, 13, he says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so how do we get Christ's joy. Well, through the words that he's spoken, well, some of the words that he's just spoken are found in John 17, verse 3, where he says, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you. So what's life? The knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is life. That's joy. It's abundance. It's satisfaction. And so what is it about knowing God that leads us to rejoice? Well, we could talk about this for a long time because everything about God leads us to rejoice. We could speak of his holiness and look at the wretchedness of this world and the purity of God and rejoice in his absolute moral perfection and delight. We could think about his self-existence, that he isn't dependent upon anything, and it lifts our hearts to rejoice in him. We're dependent creatures and cast here and there by temporal things. God is not. He's stable as a rock. That leads us to rejoice. We could even rejoice over his judgment. We see the wicked and how the wicked in this world prosper. And they get away with their evil, but there is a day coming when God will judge them. And it is appropriate for us to rejoice in the justice of God over the wicked. These are all reasons to rejoice. But tonight I want us to think about a major theme in the Apostle John about the nature of God. The Apostle John speaks much of the love of God. 1 John 4, 8 teaches that God is love. If you know God, you know him as a God of love. He is love, which means his love is himself. It's absolutely unchanging. He can't love you more than he loves you, and he can't love you less. Consider his love. It's perfect and constant. Life changes. It goes up and down. People change and their affections toward us. God's love never changes. His love is immutable. No matter what you do or anyone else does or what happens in your life, his love is absolutely as fixed as God himself is. His love is all powerful omnipotent. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why is that? Because he won't let it happen. He holds you in his omnipotent grip. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your fears and doubts may assail you. Your broken mind may fool you. Your sinful heart will lie to you. You may try to run away from the love of God. You might fight his love. You might even be one of the sheep that runs off, but he will go get you, put you on his shoulders and bring you back. His love is all powerful. He will not fail to love you to the end. It's a conquering, powerful love. Your sin cannot stand against the power of God's love. He'll never stop his pursuit of you. So his love is unchanging. His love is all powerful and his love is all-knowing. Beloved, he knows everything about you. He knows all of your sins. He knows all the sins you know that you struggle with, that you wish you didn't struggle with. He knows every one of them. And he knows all the sins you don't know that you're committing. He knows you deeply and fully and through and through. He sees it all. He sees you perfectly, better than you do or anyone else does. And looking right at you for who, in terms of who you are. And he loves you. And why does he love you? Because... He decided to love you. And Christ died for your sins. His love is all-knowing. His love is also unconditional in a, in a fundamental sense, meaning it's not based on anything in you. He swore an oath. 
he didn't have to swear an oath. He made a promise, but then he, he added to his promise an oath, a vow of love, and he can't break it because the Bible says he cannot lie. God's love doesn't depend on your works. God's love doesn't depend on your efforts or your goodness. His love for you absolutely does not depend upon your faith. It doesn't depend upon your conversion. It doesn't depend upon your faithfulness. It doesn't depend on how well you keep the law or how much you know. His love for you depends upon Him. He loves you with an infinite, perfect love. It's absolutely, fundamentally unconditional. And if you meditate on the love of God, you will find this to be a very sweet doctrine. And His love for you is one reason you should rejoice. This is why we have joy. Another reason to rejoice, another doctrine we find here in this passage is God's sovereign election. It's all through John 17. In verse 2, he speaks of those you have given him. In verse 6, he speaks of the people whom you gave me out of the world. Some people think of the doctrine of election as a sad and dark and depressing doctrine, but the Apostle Paul says, in love he predestined us. This is a doctrine of love. When you think of election, do you rejoice that your name is written in heaven? Luke 10, 20, Jesus told his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. What a comfort. You did nothing to get into his electing grace. You can do nothing to get out of it. It's unconditional at the first and it's unconditional at the last. He's going to keep you by his power because he chose you in eternity, had nothing to do with you. What a comfort, what a joy. And the fact that God chose you for salvation means he's going to give you every saving blessing in Jesus. You can bank your whole life on this. He cancels your debt because of his election. And he puts you in Jesus and he sent Jesus to die for your sin and he clothes you in Christ's righteousness. And then he adopts you into his family, calls you his child. He becomes your father. He gives you his spirit. He seals you for eternity. He keeps you by his great power. He's never going to let you go. He will take you all the way to heaven and get you through this dark and broken world. And he'll protect you from yourself from your own sins, your greatest enemy, your own heart. And he's going to lead you to the place one day where you will commune with him forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 8.30 is a reason to rejoice. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, every one of them, he also glorified. It's a past tense word because it's so certain. You will be glorified. What a comfort. But the greatest joy of all isn't that. Those are great joys. Hard to imagine greater joys. But the greatest joy of all is the knowledge of Jesus personally. That the king of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the Lord Jesus himself welcomes you into communion with him, a dirty, rotten sinner. 
And he loves communion with you. He wants you to come to himself. He wants you to commune with him. Look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Beloved, if you know him, you have a great reason to rejoice. Do you know him as God? Mighty to save. Colossians 1.19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, because he's God, he has power to save you from your sins. Salvation is of the Lord. If Jesus weren't God, he couldn't save you. The fact that he's God means he can not just save you, he's going to keep every promise that he made to you. You can believe him when he says in John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so because Jesus is God, you can trust him. And every word that he speaks, you can bank your whole life upon him. He will not disappoint you. Why? He's God. But do you also know him as a human being? This is so important. Many times evangelicals, they know him as God and they know he's human, but they don't commune with him as human. They don't think of him as human. According to his human nature, he is only human. You know this. He has a true body, a human body, and a reasonable soul, no sin, and yet only human according to his human nature. And what that means is that he can sympathize with you. He can sympathize with all of your weaknesses. He can sympathize with all the trials that you experience in this world, which means he's approachable. If he were God only, he would command our fear and our reverence and our obedience. But it would, how could we draw near to him but that he is man as poor sinners? who are in this broken world, we can draw near to him through his human nature. He knows. He knows our pains, our sorrows, our griefs, our difficulties. If he were only a man, he might be our friend. But how could we trust him to save us? And yet he's true God and true man. One who has all authority, all power, infinite divine, and yet one who is meek and humble and gentle, tender and approachable. He's truly human, one who sympathizes. Isn't that a reason to rejoice in Jesus? His great person. Do you know him? Do you know him in his work to save you from your sins? That he knows all the sins that you committed today, This past week, the sins of your mouth, the words that you spoke, he knows every one of them. The motions of your heart. He knows them all. And he bore them in his body on the tree. They were nailed to the cross and canceled once and for all. And he rose from the dead because he beat death by his death. He satisfied the justice of God. And his, his death brought his own life and brings you life. When you look upon Jesus and his person and his work, there's so many reasons to rejoice. And one day he's going to bring you to himself. We read about it just a few minutes ago. 
You'll be in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein only righteousness dwells. And one day, on that day, you'll not have to fear what other people might do to you. All sin is gone. You won't have to fear what you might do to other people. It's only life, only joy. No more sin, no more sorrow. He wipes every tear from our eyes. Perfect fellowship with Christ. A world of love, a world of joy. And when you look forward to heaven, is that not a reason to rejoice? And this is how we can rejoice in this world, which is a world of suffering. There's no escape. You know this. You can suffer and go to hell or suffer and go to heaven. This is a world of suffering. There's no way out. But this is how we can rejoice as believers, even in times of great suffering and sorrow. Please turn with me to Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. This passage is about how the, Habak- the prophet Habakkuk rejoiced in the Lord, even though the Babylonians were coming to destroy his people, his kinsmen, everything that he knew, they were going to invade Judah. And everything on the horizon, temporally speaking, looked very bleak and dark, hopeless. But look at what the prophet says. Habakkuk 3, verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom. What does that mean? There's no fruit on the tree. It's barren. This is a metaphor for every problem. The fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Everything is dark, nothing to eat. There's barrenness over the land. Verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, in Yahweh, the one true God. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is why we rejoice. God is ours and we are his, and he even sees and knows your lack of joy. He sees and he knows right now the sinful sorrow in your heart. He sees everything that's going on and and he takes it to himself in, in the person of Jesus and he cancels the debt and he bids you to come and to learn one day at a time from Sabbath to Sabbath one day at a time, one week at a time, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus for the joy that is set before you. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Lord, help us to rejoice in so great a salvation and in such a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CVTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, 
visit cbtseminary.org.